Hello and welcome to the Why I Knit podcast. My name is Dr. Mia Hobbs and I'm a clinical psychologist who is passionate about knitting and its benefits for our mental health. Each week on the podcast, I interview a different knitter about why they knit and how it benefits their mental health. This week on the podcast, I'm so pleased to be joined by Susie Bass. Susie is a researcher who is studying a PhD in the relationship between power, identity and mental health through craft. Before you listen to this interview, it's important to know that Susie speaks about her experiences of losing a baby, of experiencing a sexual assault, and also of being diagnosed with autism and ADHD later in life. So hi, Susie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mia. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Um, it's lovely to speak to you today. So I always start with asking where your story with knitting began, but I know you do multiple crafts. So I don't know if you want to tell me your crafting origin story. <laughs> yeah, I think it did start, obviously, with a lot of different crafts. And I, you know, when I was thinking about that question, I was like, probably from the moment I was born, I was surrounded by women who crafted. Mm. And um, I think I was the first grandchild. So I think I was gifted a lot of handmade items. And I think anyone who crafts knows it's much easier to make a small item (laughs) than a large one. Um, And so I think my mom crocheted a lot of dresses and cardigans and outfits for me and I had two grandmothers who were both crafters as well. I think I associate one more with knitting and the other with with sewing. And so I grew up in the in the 1970s, so handmade was very much a a thing then. I think most of my sort of party dresses would have been handmade by either my mom or one of my grandmothers. Um all of my school jumpers and cardigans were hand knitted. I don't think throughout my entire education I ever had a shop bought cardigan or jumper. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. Um we had um, I mean my my nan who did the knitting was really quite talented in terms of those uh patterns and could probably do a knitting chart based on your interests so we'd get I mean amazing jumpers unfortunately I have no idea what would have happened to them but so being surrounded by that I don't really remember anyone sitting me down and teaching me I think I just absorbed it as such to start with I did a lot more sewing because I had a grandmother who lived close by and I think she was a seamstress she had her own sewing room which I was allowed to go and play in and and make things yeah um I would say I remember the first jumper I made was when I was about 18 and I made it out of patchwork squares and I got everyone in my family to to knit a a square that was going to go in my you know in my fantastic What's that thing? Is it Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream? Oh, yeah. I was thinking that, but like a jumper. 
and I was really surprised that my granddad knitted me a square oh wow and once again I, I you know I don't know where the items went but I do re- I do remember you know the colors of the jumper and I loved that jumper and then when I went to university I remember specifically asking my mum can you teach me to crochet because I wanted to make crochet I think it was you know the the sloppy hats oh yeah I wanted to make those and then I guess sort of I crocheted a lot when I was at university and then when my children were born I is it origami origami the little toys I can't even say it but yeah amigurumi um, I think that's yeah. it yeah um so they designed toys and I'd make the toys uh-huh and then in terms of knitting I got pregnant with a third child and I thought I want to make a patchwork blanket and unfortunately I I lost that child oh, and I'm I think sorry. from from that point that's where craft really really helped with my mental health and so um I continued knitting the blanket and gave it to to my other son and then I really I really got into knitting at that point because there's a rhythm to knitting I was finding and um I started with socks and I found that so helpful Mm just the process of making socks and then the repairing of socks and the reusing of socks. I just found that really therapeutic and I liked the idea of the the nicer yarns. Yeah. And the the hand dyed yarns, which are probably quite expensive if you're going to be able to make them into a jumper. And I liked that I was able to justified to myself making a pair of socks as as a you know as a therapeutic process Mm. and it sounds like did did were you aware of it having that kind of benefit beforehand before the patchwork blanket okay not really it was I think because like I said I just grew up with it it kind of felt natural that's what everyone did and And it sounds like it was for the purpose of creating things you needed to wear rather than people weren't doing it for fun really no it was it was a way of life I think yeah and then I guess this was like um sort of 2006 2007 and as I was going to the library looking looking at knitting books it just seemed to be that there was Obviously, there's always craft revivals going on, mm. but it just seemed to be, you know, I was at, I had small children and there was this whole sort of blogging about knitting that yeah. I was able to access. And it, it just felt like the homemade thing was sort of important to me because it encapsulated a lot of those values of like sustainability and care for your clothes and I really enjoyed reading I think mostly what I was doing then because I didn't really have a podcast I don't think existed at the time 
Probably not, not that, that. I don't not know exactly when they. Of. No. And so I really enjoyed reading. Um, I kind of got into that blogging and and making and almost like I guess it's you know how perhaps people might journal these days in terms of just reflecting on the positive aspects and grounding aspects of your life things that you enjoy that are of value not to exclude those difficult feelings I was having about losing a child but in order to manage them at the same time yeah yeah um sometimes I sort of feel like it's space to breathe yeah so I like so I my my children were quite young when I lost the baby I think one was six and one was three so Mm. I was still having to be you know a mum yeah and do everything that that involves when you've got small children and And that doesn't leave so much space does it for processing anything no so I think just the simple to start with um I didn't even do continue the blanket I just got some uh it was vintage cotton yarn that I already had that Mm -hmm. I'd been crocheting with and I just knitted just knitted Mm -hmm. and I felt almost as if like the tactile nature of of creating and making visibly making those rows yeah just allowed me to sit and think about how I was feeling yeah rather than I need to do this I need to do that I need to do this like constant I I think I would maybe as as busy parents do there's never a time is there where everything's done and you're like oh I can just sit down now there's nothing else to do and I think the knitting allowed me to justify sitting down and almost I would say to myself well the washing up in the kitchen can wait because you're feeling a you know you're not feeling okay so you can sit down and the the kids are playing so that's fine and you can sit and you can knit Mm -hmm. yeah so it was a way of making a little bit of space for you and for your grief and yes maybe making the grief more manageable to sit with for a bit by doing something with your hands as well because I think you know um my grandma died quite young Mm -hmm. and my dad also died quite young and I think when when you lose someone, for me, I think I was feeling the grief of losing my grandma and my dad. And that connection with the crafting, mm. it was almost like uh, a comfort as if maybe not spiritually they were there with me. But in my heart, that was mm. sort of who I was. Yeah. And where I'd come from, uh, mm-hmm. a home that was very much um, built on people making stuff themselves. Yeah, uh, I lived when I when I was small. Um, the house that I lived in was built by my granddad and my dad and my mum. Oh wow! Yeah, so just 
it's like that connection isn't it with with your with your history and your heritage and who you are and and sometimes I think when you are in a place of overwhelming grief and you feel like you can't do anything yeah the knitting felt like I was doing something yeah and I think that's something that comes up very often in grief and in kind of depression like low mood the idea of there being so many things you can't do or feel overwhelmed by but that knitting is something you can do in very small increments also actually when people have small children I think it comes up very often and certainly I can relate to that the idea of doing it when you don't have any space or time for yourself but you could do it in tiny increments because I guess when you have small kids you just don't know how many minutes consecutive minutes you're going to (laughs) have to do a thing that's why the socks I, I think that's why I did the socks because um maybe if we did the school run and they wanted to play in the park on the way home I did a little bit of knitting then um if we were at swimming lessons and I was sitting at the top I did some knitting there and you just yeah you just I don't know there's a piece in knitting isn't there yeah almost like if I talk about the swimming lessons, I, ha- I would have two in the pool at the same time and be having to watch uh, one. Uh, did you see me do that? Did you see me do yeah. that? And I'd be like, that's yeah, my well, life I'm at gonna... the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you see my jump? Did you? See... And I just felt if I was doing something with my hands, I didn't feel that anxiety of splitting my attention. Mm. I felt almost like I could spread my attention and feel calmer and just say, oh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yours was great. Yeah. Because, as you know, you do sit, for example, watching swimming lessons or sports day and your child does want that validation and that feedback. Mm -hmm. And it can be quite stressful when you're you're trying to split your attention, can't it? Yeah. And especially if you have quite lively children who want your attention a lot yeah I kind of felt I don't know almost like knitting helped you concentrate yeah I I definitely would agree with that and I think there's a lot of parenting for for me I think you know with primary school age kids where you're kind of always like on call (laughs) like you're not necessarily 100% needed but you're kind of could be needed at any second (laughs) or you know you're needed to be like in the background prompting or keeping them on task with like I don't know reading or homework or whatever it is but that you're not so free that you could go and do another useful task but also there are eight billion tasks that need to be done and I guess now which maybe I don't know whether it was the case when your kids were small probably because of technology changes but now my temptation would be to pick my phone up and like oh I'll just quickly order that birthday present online or something but then I'm not present and I'm mentally absent (laughs) whereas if if my knitting is in my hand if my knitting is in my hands then I am mentally present but my hands are just busy enough that I can focus on. I don't need to do the 10 billion other things that are running through my head because I'm doing this. I'm sitting here and I'm watching the swimming lesson or I'm listening to the reading or whatever it is. Um, so I think I can definitely relate to that level of just about enough stimulation to help you focus on something else. 
And I definitely find that if I'm sitting and listening, like with like next week, I'm doing three full days of training on Zoom. And if I didn't have knitting, I would find that very challenging, I think. (laughs) I think that's the wonderful thing, isn't it, about Zoom and knitting is it's it's done just off camera, isn't it? I I did. I loved I loved the time that we had when we had meetings online where you could knit because it did help me listen to what was going on and focus because sometimes I'd find myself drifting off because not everything is relevant to you at all points and you can only take so much in can't you but also you're only a human we're not really designed to sit and listen passively I don't think I think it's it's quite hard for most people I think when you have to watch a film for the 17th time (laughs) to be honest for me watching a film for the first time I can't just sit and watch tv at all like I have to be doing something with my hands I've always been like that um yeah and luckily you know there's a lot of knitting I can do so I can even watch something and have with subtitles and still would have to knit something easy but I can't just sit and watch (laughs) so I can relate to that I'm interested. So some people I've spoken to, Susie, had grew up in a house where crafting was to produce items. And it sounds like that was the case when you were young. And then there was an element of um, maybe when they were younger, rejecting it as, oh, that's a thing you have to do. Therefore, I don't want to do it or I wouldn't choose to do it as my hobby, for example, or they're not really being um, it not being seen as a a thing that might be of value to your like well-being not that we particularly talked about those terms in in those times but um I don't know whether you ever had that or whether you were always attracted to it um I think I rejected a lot of the knitting and the Mm -hmm. jumpers just because uh probably of the yarns that we used yeah in the 70s were uh, probably either like quite a scratchy wool yeah so not very comfortable Mm -hmm. and I think what I really enjoyed was I could do whatever I liked in my grandma's sewing room in terms of I had her scraps if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean and all the threads and so it was more creative and art-based sort of stuff that I would have been doing when I was really young and I just always loved that Mm -hmm. and then that moved maybe into mixed media stuff Mm -hmm. which is what I did at university and um, a big part which I forgot to say was um, um, I did dancing from when I was tiny so costumes are Ah. a massive thing yeah and so fancy dress and costumes and adapting clothing is something that I've done all because I was thinking with the knitting brain and not the sewing brain yeah so um costumes have always been a big part of my life and so any shows and stuff you do it's all handmade costumes Mm. and with everybody doing that Everybody that I was yeah. engaged with, um, I guess, um, if you're a if you're a dancer, 
it's it's kind of quite a a full-on hobby mm. if, you, if you know what I mean it's like practice 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 exam shows and then as I went into my teenage years I did um figure skating oh, as wow. well so again costume designing and making yeah. your own costumes and um for a time I was in the the show team for um our ice rink so you know like if I don't know if you've been to see any of those shows on ice now you've got a whole big chorus of ice skaters just basically filling the space and and doing things and they're all wearing costumes that's sort of what a show ice skating was yeah yeah wow so So you had another driver for doing those crafty things yeah so yeah I don't think I ever rejected that in that sense I mean I rejected I was never gonna have a family or get married or any of that okay or I I was never gonna stay at home you know all of those I rejected every single you know domestic duty okay (laughs) going but I never saw knitting or sewing or crafting as any of those yeah because it was always useful for you yeah and fun and colorful and and I guess um attracted my attention Mm. whereas washing up can in my opinion never be fun there is no there is no fun to be had yeah washing up sure yeah. Even now, even now, like uh, if I've had a particularly busy day at work and I come home and perhaps because um, my son's in sixth form now. Mm-hmm. So he's sometimes at home when I'm at work. I come home and the kitchen's full of washing up. I just bypass it. Cup of tea and upstairs and some crafting. <laughs> yeah. So that feels more therapeutic for you. Yeah. I think yeah, we can there, all relate I mean, to that. There are some people, aren't there, who really, they they enjoy cleaning and tidying Mm -hmm. I'm not one of them (laughs) fair enough (laughs) okay and why do you think you've kept going with the crafting so it sounds like um you you had this moment where you realize actually this is helping me with my grief and that you started knitting maybe different things you were attracted to socks and the process maybe more than the it sounds like a lot historically was about uh, what you could make yes. and the end product and then you had this moment of grief where you uh, maybe started to appreciate the process for that the benefits and I suppose I'm wondering where your journey has been since then and in terms of what what knitting or the other crafts give you for your mental well-being so I think in terms of from from that point I very much got involved in um, craft groups and running craft groups. And I've always uh, done, so um, I started teaching when I was around about 16, which you can, no, 14, sorry, Mm -hmm. which you can do as a student teacher in in a dance school. So I'd always taught things and... um, when I first started teaching, I taught creative things like art and mm-hmm. cookery and and drama. And so 
I really started to recognize the benefit of having groups of people crafting. Mm. And um, I ran a craft group for a little while and then started to notice that I think it was a little bit more where phones were coming in and social media was uh, sort of a little bit more... I don't know. It allowed people to have chats with you privately mm-hmm. after an event, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So people would contact me and say things like, oh, um, I'm going through a really difficult time and the group is really helping me. Mm. And then there was one time in particular um, where someone in the group shared that her daughter had uh gone off with a group almost like a cult mm-hmm. and this mother had been really struggling emotionally and uh, sort of trying to get the child back engaged with the family and all this had been happening every every week for months and it was the group she said that had helped coming mm-hmm. and sitting and crafting and being I think she described it as almost like normal life. Mm. And that re- that really stuck with me, this idea that you can have all of these struggles going on and then you can sit with some people and you can craft and you can maybe share your struggles mm-hmm. or you can maybe not share anything mm-hmm. and just get lost in a moment where all that matters is what you're doing in that moment. And I think I became really interested in that concept from then and then looking at sort of how that fitted in in a therapeutic process, Mm -hmm. not necessarily in a formal setting like your setting but more in community settings and how people get together Mm -hmm. to be together to support each other but without it being that specific talking therapy yeah sort of process process if that if that makes uh, I don't think I'm explaining very no I think it it does make a lot of sense because I think there is something that makes uh, craft groups more accessible, I think, to lots of people, because I think there are there's a there's a specific task, isn't there, and a focus. Yes. And I think that makes it feel like a more comfortable space that like, you know, as someone who does one to one therapy and has done therapeutic groups, I think a lot of people feel worried about that and what they'll have to share and what the other people will be like and how difficult that might be um whereas I think when there's a and actually even other groups where there is the task is talking or participating I think that is anxiety provoking for lots of people but I think the kind of shared focus on a on a physical thing and a task is quite helpful and I think I've used it a lot for engagement with one-to-one clients as well where actually it feels very difficult for them to be in the room they kind of want to be there but that if we do something together maybe we sit next to each other rather than opposite each other and that feels 
less challenging and that sometimes we're not making direct eye contact that also sometimes helps quite a lot I think and um, so I can definitely see that uh, it probably brings different people to the group than if it was a just a therapeutic talking group and maybe once people get to know each other or they feel comfortable in the space there's something you know there are conversations that happen and actually sometimes people don't want to have conversations but there's something therapeutic about sitting and doing something alongside other people yeah there's there's comfort in that silence of making isn't yeah. there in um one of the things that I'm doing as part of my PhD is a quilt block for the Grenfell Memorial Quilt and so I've had a couple of sessions where I've bought some things so that people can make stuff and I've noticed in in those sessions everything goes quiet Mm. and there's this beautiful reflection of what we're doing but also the purpose of it in that it's a memorial for people but the respect of silence is really important, I think, sometimes. Mm, yeah. And, uh, we live in a very sort of verbal world. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's nice to to remove that yeah. and have connections that are based on you know, a mutual understanding of the space and the intention and people's private thoughts have a space there Mm -hmm. without being articulated. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's one of the reasons that grief and bereavement come up a lot with how knitting has helped because I guess it's one of those times where, you know, there aren't any words that are going to change anything or helpful but necessarily, but sometimes being alongside somebody is something you want to offer as an outsider to the, you know, as um, somebody who wants to help somebody who's uh, bereaved or that, you know, that that's a time for processing difficult things. There's a Uh, physical comfort, isn't there, in the fabric and the materials that you're working with. Yeah. You know, it is, you're creating almost a, a blanket a a soft gentle space yeah yes yeah that that offers some comfort and it sounds like in your grief you were drawn towards the kind of nice materials that the materials mattered to you yeah and that's the wonderful thing isn't it about uh creating a patchwork is that you can have all of those different colors and textures and I experimented with a lot of different stitches later on when I repaired the blanket because Mm. my son had it for a number of years and it it got worn and each time I repaired one of the squares I'd be like oh I'll try a new stitch yeah oh that's lovely so it's also kind of a history yes yeah yeah yeah, it is a history yeah. yeah yeah that's amazing um I'd love to hear more about your PhD research, if you're happy to say a bit more about that, about how you arrived at this topic and how it came about. Um, yeah, so again, I had another difficult moment in my life in terms of mental health. Um, there was a, a particular year where my daughter was struggling a lot 
as she transitioned in, into secondary school mm-hmm. and um I was noticing I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating but I didn't feel that depression that I'd felt after losing the child mm-hmm. it was it was more distraction and I couldn't concentrate and I think um I because I because I work with uh, special educational needs mm-hmm. I started to think about ADHD and uh, about how I'd always had trouble sleeping and always had issues around food when I was feeling anxious so sickness and Mm -hmm. and I felt that my attention was drifting a lot and so I I went for a diagnosis and then I didn't hear anything and then I got almost a year later I went for the assessment and I got a diagnosis and then at that diagnosis they suggested that I also go for um, an autism confirmation diagnosis so I got these two diagnoses at the same time probably um, in the middle of the menopause Wow! and I was also given because this is the first line of treatment uh, Ritalin and I just fell apart in terms of I didn't know who I was um, or what has happened and why it has happened. And as part of that process, you have to, you know, you have to go back over the whole history of your life. Yeah. yeah. Which I would never recommend to anyone, <laughs> especially when you're looking at it from a deficit. Yes, it's a very difficult lens to look through any it's, history, yes. isn't it? Because they're looking yes. for... Uh, yeah it's a a deficit model I suppose isn't it for the assessment process so when you are struggling and then everything is focused through that deficit model yeah um I found it very difficult to cope to think about who I was why you know I I I had uncertainty around everything Mm. and um my senses felt as if they were hypersensitive Mm. and um one of the memories that it brought up was uh, about a sexual assault which had happened a very long time ago and I reported that to the police so at the same time I, I was going through a police investigation oh wow and working and parenting and trying to come to terms with who I was looking through these new diagnoses. And I started sewing hmm. again because I hadn't, I, like, I embroidered a dress and I just found the stitching really helpful. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go and do a master's in autism studies and see if I can understand that a little bit more and then when I returned to education I just really enjoyed the the research aspect and the learning and understanding about who you are and how your identity is formed and and why that potentially 
breaks down and then impacts your mental health. And while I was doing this, I was doing a lot of sketching and then a lot of sewing. Almost like you said before, like sometimes the words aren't helpful and the images and the pictures are. And and what um, kind of sewing were you doing at that point? I'm embroidering on, on dresses. Okay, yeah. So it just so happened to be at, I I think I re went and reported the, the, the rape to the police about a month before the Me Too. Right, okay. Sort of thing exploded. Yeah. So after that happened, it was everywhere and there was no... Yeah, and so I was really trying to understand, you know, gendered violence. Like, why is this happening? And I'd always enjoyed making clothes mm -hmm. and loved fashion. And I think... I found that clothing was an expression of who I was. And I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I haven't got loads of money. I'm just going to embellish my dresses. And I've always been very keen on the environment and um, protecting resources, natural fibers and fabrics and reusing stuff and recycling things. And then the Rana Plaza yeah. sort of disaster, just, I couldn't get that out of my mind, you know, that fast fashion was occurring and mostly women were working in such dangerous conditions and didn't have workers' rights. And I really started looking at that exploitation of the earth's resources and also of poorer people. Yeah. And I sort of wanted a way to express that, you know, on the clothing. And then I discovered craftivism. I was like, oh, this is perfect. Yeah. And so I looked at how you can, I think, first of all, I looked at, t-shirts you know how t-shirts um designs they can express a message or something about identity and then mm -hmm. I looked at um the banners from uh Greenham Common oh yeah and how people were using um images and fabrics and that these banners were multi- purpose and I really sort of I loved that idea of how perhaps you don't have to keep all of that pain inside you mm. you can find a way or a word or an image of saying something mm -hmm. through a banner or through a dress or through my PhD quilt that I'm making yeah. that people can relate to and you can tell some of those stories that you couldn't tell in words. So it sounds like it was for the purpose of the activism mm. as well as for a more personal purpose of a time when you were reconnecting with who am I and what are my values yes. or what is what's still me if I'm looking at me through these different lenses that are new and just showed up at this point in my life. 
and I, I think another another big thing was the the time of life so going through that menopause and the body changing and starting to get aches and pains and just physically looking different I think a lot of my hair fell out and that would have been stress as well and just your whole like I kept looking and it was also then the pandemic and you know we weren't going out anywhere and it was I felt it was a lot to kind of lose almost lose yourself yeah, yeah. yeah. Where well, it sounds I, like the where, ground where shifted completely yeah. under you and you didn't know which way was up anymore yeah. yeah exactly exactly that but still I think always had that that craft element mm. just cling on yeah here but it does sewing. sound it's been a very consistent thread if you pardon the pun uh, through your life absolutely <laughs> I would say 100% because mm. I find it so difficult to just lie there with my thoughts mm. without thinking I need to do something or having the uh, their expectations that I put on myself obviously yeah. but I'm not doing any of those things that I should be doing and I think when I'm crafting something or making something or expressing something it feels like those negative voices disappear yeah. or I can silence them in some way. Yeah. And I do wonder whether that is why it's been a more traditionally like female domain, maybe that like that there are there's there's more guilt about not being useful, I think, in women. Yeah. <laughs> like well, to have I'm a hobby productive. that yeah. produce yeah exactly that produces something useful that that kind of I think for some of us legitimizes rest <laughs> when we struggle to access it otherwise or allow give ourselves permission to take it yeah definitely yeah, yeah. but it sounds like you've taken that rest and also you've had added an activist <laughs> yes and yes. now it's so With... legitimate that I'm going to get a PhD for it yes, almost, but not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah how how can we turn a craft into something acceptable for the rest of the world? Yeah. Which is yeah. awful, isn't it? Because that's, for me, I think, why people potentially have struggles with their mental health, because it isn't actually acceptable to take that time and space to rest, is it? Yeah, it's very difficult. I know we say, yes, you can. I know social media tells you you can, but I think in reality. Well, there are, you know, there are very um, real limits on that, aren't there? Depending on what your responsibilities are and how much money you have or how many hours you need to work or how much caring responsibilities you have. Like there are very real reasons often that that feels very inaccessible. Yeah, and I think... You know, like, uh, um, so the knitting small items or crocheting squares that you make into a blanket or even um, the quilting, the tiny hexagons, you can put those all in your bag and you can have a moment to yourself, can't you? Yeah. Otherwise, 
you just wouldn't you would just be filled with obligations and yeah. expectations all the time I guess it's like a, a making a little barrier <laughs> to keep those out for five or ten minutes yeah and my husband sometimes says that about my knitting. He was like, well, you've literally surrounded yourself with needles so that people can't come near you. <laughs> I think there's yes, some truth it. to that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think, you know, if you do make things, you do care about the things that you make and then you do repair them and then they become part of your life. Yeah. I in my sock knitting phase, yeah. I did knit a full collection of socks for my husband and he only wears knitted socks that I've made mm-hmm. and I just keep repairing them or I like might chop the toe off and re-knit the toe or cut out the heel and, and then, so they are mostly Franken socks but <laughs> he really likes them and that's what he gets at Christmas a re-knit of a sock and when you don't have a huge amount of money and also you don't want to be buying things for the sake of buying things I feel really comfortable in the fact that some of these socks are coming up to about you know 14 15 years old yeah yeah that's amazing sort of you know the sock knitting coincided with you know when I lost the baby so maybe these are these are these are like um, a knitted diary of 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 the time from that point there's um one yarn that I use I think I don't know where it is I've got a new one of it but when I did lose the baby it was in in November it's actually the anniversary this weekend it's the 5th of November, which is for a long time was really hard because yeah. of the firework night yeah. and that memory of being in hospital. But I bought a yarn called November Rain. First of all, I knitted a shawl, but it was too scratchy. So I unraveled it and I knitted it into socks. And then I kept repairing the socks. And then I ran out of the leftover yarn. So I bought a new version of the same yarn and that that kind of it feels like a history yeah I think that's right and also and I think that's a thing that handmade garments a they've also I relate to making that I'm much more invested in repairing them and looking after them even things like ironing like having sewn my own which is arguably not beneficial to the clothes more to me looking less scruffy but um (laughs) that uh, you know it's turned me into somebody who irons whereas previously if I was buying clothes to wear I would avoid buying things that needed ironing but I don't mind because I made it myself yeah there's <laughs> and something I'm about... taking care of it yeah but also in repairing things and in the amazing you know the stories the life events they took you through and yeah the amount of time you would love them and wear them for well you keep them longer don't you yeah, for sure. Yeah, and um, now that I've got into quilting, a lot of the things that I'd made that no longer fit, I've cut into my PhD quilt. Yeah, amazing. Because I think you're attracted to the fabrics, aren't you? And as 
as you see fabrics around in your life, they imprint on your on your memory, don't they? Like you said, it's I remember when I wore it here and I, when I wore it there and I and I wore it for this and that and that fabric holds all of those memories. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of memories or significant things you've made, I'd love to hear about a significant, usually I ask about a knitting project, but it doesn't have to be knitted, like a significant make of yours. So I am wearing this cardigan today. Oh, I love the colour. I don't know if you can oh, see. Oh, yeah, I can. I so can. it's got lace there and lace there and lace oh, yeah. in the back. Lovely, yeah. So... I mean, what's this cardigan? It's called the Aspen's cardigan. Mm-hmm. And this is the second one I've made. And the first one I made was during that year. It was 2017. I started mm-hmm. it in January and I made it during that year, during my diagnosis and during the police investigation. <laughs> and I made it with sock yarn. Yeah. That re- that. By the time, because I lost a lot of weight during that year, mm. by the time I finished it, it was super stretched oh. and didn't fit in any way. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wear it, but I'd wear it, you know, I'd put it on. And then I um, I had a friend come around and she was going for a, a difficult time. And um, in that year, she, she lost her nan. Mm-hmm. And she always said how when I knitted, it reminded me her of her nan. Okay, when and you so, were knitting. Yeah. yeah. So I gave it to her because I couldn't wear it, you know. Yeah. You'll know if you've invested a year of your life yes. <laughs> in a cardigan, you're not just going to like, oh, you, you want to hold on to it, yeah. don't you? But I, I, I gave it to her and, you know, she said it, it, it helped her feel close to her nan. And then... Because I I loved the cardigan so much, I remade it. Mm-hmm. And that's the one you're wearing. Yeah, and I remade it in um. So I made that in a sock yarn, and then I made this in a lace. And so yeah. it's like little and large of the cardigans <laughs> using exactly the same pattern. But it looks I'm, like it fits really well, though. Yeah, it does. It fits really well now. Yeah. So I'm not very good at um, estimating the size or remaining the same size. (laughs) Well, that's all a challenge. But I guess at least, yeah, yeah, I find I don't really mind because I knit so much more for the process than the outcome. um, And I refuse to knit to deadlines. I don't mind if I end up having to uh, unravel something and then re-knit in order to eventually end up with something that I like so this is your significant item this is my significant item your second version yeah and I I feel like I made it right in a year where I had absolutely no idea what was going and I had so much trauma come up and I didn't know who I was or anything and then it's almost like I remade it and I made it the first one was in like a wine color Mm -hmm. and then I made it in this orange and it's almost like I'd made myself whole again. You know, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like I, I re- reconstructed myself yeah. because it takes a really long time, doesn't it, to knit a, a cardigan? That's, oh yeah, that's a lot of thinking that goes into that. Yeah, and so 
from where I started that the wine colored one the burgundy to where I got to the orange yeah a lot had changed mm. but it was still the same cardigan but completely different and I was still the same person and completely different and I really I love how if you look at a pattern and you find a pattern and you just love it don't you and you make it and you're like I'd really love that I want seven <laughs> yeah, yeah I've got a similar a cardigan that's not a dissimilar kind of pattern with a lace pattern uh, down there it's like a mustardy yellow um but I do think about making another one because I do love it and wear it all the time <laughs> oh that's amazing thank you for sharing that and it sounds like it came at a really significant part of your life in terms of identity and that it was really what you went through a real process with the cardigan itself as well as yeah and, your life. And, and with the friend as well because I think um that whole concept of it helping her connect to her grandmother has really influenced how I'm writing my PhD because I'm using because it's like a qualitative thing and people are telling me stories that are really precious and and Mm. painful and often involve people who don't know that they're being talked about I needed to like find a way to represent those. And so I'm experimenting at the moment. I've created a composite character, which okay. is a grandma who just tells the stories as if they happened to her to her. And I think there's something about the the passing down of stories and the passing down of skills through it doesn't have to necessarily be female lines, but in terms of the knitting and the crafting, it it often is that felt really important to represent those stories of people who struggled with their mental health and and their identity and perhaps how you do find yourself again is by reconnecting with those people who aren't there anymore but perhaps supported you when you were younger and informing your identity and cared about who you were and what you were doing and influenced your life I think your grandparents and your parents influence everything don't they yeah and I guess they might also be people you associate with something like um I don't know care comfort like wisdom Mm. also like having lived through a lot of those you know changes themselves for example yeah yeah brilliant um I would always ask about um relationship to mistakes Susie what is your relationship to mistakes in crafting so I have a cardigan here I prepared for this one (laughs) I've got this cardigan here right again it's got it's uh, like a cable it's a got a cable so I learned to do cables on this cardigan okay and I did half of the cable wrong ah. all the way around so there I don't know can you see that so it's raised can you see how wrong does <laughs> the other side is oh yeah yeah like completely like so wrong it's so wrong and so I was like, well, 
I am going to embrace my mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, wear it as a badge of honor of how I'm recovering from my perfectionism. <laughs> and yes. I shall literally wear my mistakes. Yeah. So everyone can see them. And no one ever says to me, oh, that's a really nice cable pattern. Oh, yes, I can see you've made a terrible mistake all the way around on every single one. No one's ever said it. No. And I always point it out. And so I would say knitting, I'm not very good at knitting. Mm-hmm. And I always make mistakes because yeah. I don't concentrate. And mostly I leave them in. And, and is that a small form of craftivism, do you think? I think so, yeah. <laughs> against that, you know, against that perfectionism. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the fact that it is okay to it is okay to make mistakes. Yeah. I've made like I've done a lot of colour work on yeah. socks. Yeah. It's shockingly bad. <laughs> but it's a pair of socks, so it doesn't matter. I think it it helps me realize that it's not the end of the world when you make a mistake. And sometimes when you make a mistake, actually in real life, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. You know, that something bad is going to happen. And I've got my terrible socks on that have got really, really bad color work and nothing ever happens. I've got a pair of mittens as well. Well, nothing bad has ever happened when I've worn my mittens. Do you know what I mean? The knitting police haven't got to the, you. The knitting no. <laughs> police have not come yet. Whereas I can tell you, the breastfeeding police—they were out as soon as <laughs> right, as yeah. soon as I started training that. And parenting, people are always telling you how to do things. Work, people are always telling you, you need to do it like that. You need to do it like this. The whole point of academia is for someone to argue against what you've done. And I think it's really nice to have something where you can enjoy making a mistake. And yeah, and it accept matter. it. Yeah. And be a bit self-compassionate. And, oh, I'm a human after all. Yeah, with crochet, I love ripping it out. You, it's not so easy to rip out with knitting. Crochet, you just pull it, it comes undone. When I teach people crochet, that's what I teach them to start with, ripping out the work. I think it is good to have a baseline for, you know, mistakes will happen. And mm. I've been doing this for every day for, I don't know what, how many years, 15 years, and I make mistakes all the time. And you're going to make mistakes too. <laughs> and that's going to be part of the process. Yeah, and I think, like, it's only a pattern, isn't it? It's not a law. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing with your cardigan. It's a beautiful cardigan. The cables might not look like some of them, like classic cables, but they don't. It's still a lovely pattern. It's still, I can still wear it. Yeah, exactly. It's not uh, no unravelled. it. No. And also, I think, so people say that to me, like, oh, nobody else will notice. And I always think, well, I'm never, I'm not ever sure that's my my issue with it I think sometimes it's well am I just going to look at it and notice that mistake and sometimes I would rip it out for that reason because I feel like it would annoy me and I don't generally think about it through the lens of is anyone else going to notice because I think well you know most of those people can't even make clothes at all like who cares what they think (laughs) and have you found that when you have made or do you never leave your mistakes oh I do I definitely do so um I was the most recent like 
one was a cable that twisted the wrong way, but it was on a mohair cardigan and I'd already separated for the sleeves and then noticed that this twist that went the wrong way was above the separation and it was mohair. So you can't just pull that out. Um, so I would for sure, I left that and and it's, you know, right down the centre of the cardigan, but I don't think about it. Like, um, it's a lovely cardigan still. Other mistakes... I think if it was like on a, I'm wearing like a colour work cardigan where it's quite like high contrast. If it was on something like this, I would probably rip it back if it wasn't too far back because I feel like it would be quite noticeable. It would annoy me. I think me. you notice those as you do yeah. them. Like I said on the colour work socks, um, bothered because mostly I've done them in the dark when I'm watching TV so, and their socks. But if I ever, I think I've done one colour work cardigan again which I knit way too big and then I had to rip it all back and then re-knit it so for something like gauge and yeah. fit I would 100% do it because I don't want a I don't want to waste yarn on a sweater I'm not going to wear because ultimately it's too small or it's I don't know there's something annoying about the fit so fit wise and I would say that happens to me more maybe because I'm a bit lazy with knitting gauge swatches but Fit-wise, I would rip it back. Um, and I have recently for, like, my husband's sweater. He was like, oh, this, I told you the sleeves were fine. They're not fine. So then I ripped out the cuffs and knitted them two inches longer. And then, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I would do it for that reason because I want it to be usable. That's my driver. I don't want something that I'm going to go, oh, I'm not going to choose that sweater because actually it's I should have been patient and knitted an extra inch and it's too short and I get cold or something. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've re-knit quite a few things or like worn them and they grow and then especially cuffs and the bottom band mm -hmm. and then they do look ridiculous. And I think I've taken those off quite a few times and re-knitted them. And hats, you know, like the brim of a hat after you wear it for quite some time, it just like goes straight over your face when you yeah, put it I on. Yeah, I had that with the hat recently and I ripped the whole thing out because I thought, oh, I don't want to waste that nice yarn. I'd rather knit it, like re-knit the same thing or knit it into something else so that I've got something usable from the, the yarn. And I did re-knit a whole sweater, a pieced sweater, because the sleeves were too big and in order to re-knit the sleeves, I had to rip out the whole lot. And I'd worn it for a year, I think, but I wanted it to be, I wanted to wear it. So if it stops at the wearability, I don't mind because, you know, I'm going to keep knitting and there's only so many sweaters I need, really. So I'll happily <laughs> uh, make repurpose the yarn into something usable. The relationship with mistakes is such a good question. And I think <laughs> I think I might look at that in my research. I've looked. One of the things that is definitely coming up is uh, fantastical projects. Okay. That, uh, you know in my head I'm gonna make this yeah how you how's that going yeah I haven't made it that <laughs> kind of, do you know what I mean those yeah. fantasy projects yeah like oh I'm gonna make this and it's gonna be like this and it's gonna be like this have you started no I haven't even started it I'm not gonna make it <laughs> it's a similar thing isn't it it's a sort of it's a relationship with the making yeah but somebody actually I, I interviewed, I can't remember who it was. I think it was maybe Catherine Basilo was saying that 
um, about the idea of I can't remember who whose concept it was, um, but it was about enjoying all the aspects of the process. So the anticipation of the making or the looking at the patterns and the you know like that's the fantasy bit, I suppose. The actual making and then the appreciating of the the garment afterwards. That like finding ways to maximize each part of those like of the process. And I think in a way it doesn't matter if you get your joy from the uh the planning stage or the you know people have talked about like going through having a stash that's something I also sometimes ask about is a relationship with stash but going through like on days where they don't feel like they can knit because maybe they're having a really low day for example but like spending time with the yarn and all its potential um yeah looking at your yarn and thinking oh one thing I love is the color combinations yeah and I often, often, you know, get the balls out and put them together. Just have mm. a look, especially because I've got so many, because uh, I've made so many socks. I've got so many little bits yeah. of sock yarn left. Yeah. Like, and I imagine these colour work things I'm going to make out of them. Yeah. And never do because colour work is, it's really, you have to focus so hard, don't you? Or maybe yeah. you don't, but I do. I just made a spot sweater out of loads of leftovers. I didn't buy any yarn for that sweater. Um, and I guess, you know, having knitted as long as I have, um, I've got a lot of um, leftovers. And I suppose I also have a probably comfortable place on the colour wheel that I hang mm. out, if you see what I mean. So they yeah. were quite complementary to each other. Um, and that was really fun, like a trip down memory lane, knitting a tiny bit of, because some yeah. of these were very small amounts of yarn. Um, and it was a very simple kind of triangle shape of colour work pattern. So that was fairly. Um... That's what I'm doing at the moment. I am knitting for one of, so for one of the uh, participants I had, they're also doing research in a similar area. So we set each other a, a task. Yeah. And I, uh, I sort of colour coded the interview. And they're going to do something with it. And I'm going to do something with it. But because we were both sock knitters and a lot of the interview was about socks. Yeah. Um, I'm knitting. So it's going to be like a quilt block. So it's going to have embroidery on it. But it's it's got like a a knitted border. Very well. <laughs> like a margin. Yeah. And then I've just taken all of the tiny, tiny bits, like you said, of yeah. my sock yarn and um I'm knitting them together and that's like a journey through a journey through socks but I chose a really complicated stitch because <laughs> it needed to have you ever done linen stitch I think I it's, have yeah it it's like some slipping stitches. Yeah, yeah and like you move the yarn front back front back all the time but it gives like a because it needs to because I'm going to put it on fabric and we're not going to wear it. It's going to, it needs to be solid. Yeah. Okay. It is working out quite well, but, and the needles are tiny and it's taking much longer than I thought it was <laughs> going to take. But actually I'm going to show you because I, this is the yarn from the first cardigan. I'm just oh, on that lovely. bit now. Oh, that so, I, so I don't, you love that how you're, Oh, I remember when I knit because it feel because you you have the the 
the tactile memory yes and the color memory and how it feels and sort of how it behaves and you get a real almost flashback physically to that moment of making Mm. don't you yeah and all the things that have happened since then and that little ball of yarn has remained yeah in your stash all that time yeah this I mean this this yarn has it's done some things it's done some yarn bombing up at the university it did a a pom-pom up there and I've used it for uh, a sail on a boat on one of the other blocks. So it does, you do kind of get your favourite materials, don't yeah. you? So there are a lot of stories woven waste, into that. Yeah, yarn. you don't waste any of them. Like, I have got, every now and again I throw them away, but I've got lots of little jam jars of just tiny scraps mm. of nothing with this concept that I'm going to make something with all these, you know, inch long scraps that I've cut off. Oh, they're tiny, tiny. Yeah. 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 So I sometimes keep little bits for mending things, but yeah. I would love to hear Susie about something you do away from craft that benefits your mental health. So um, I've always been really active. So I danced from, um, a very early age um so I do or I did used to go to dance classes and then I injured myself and then I got another I first of all I broke my toe and then I got a compensatory injury in my Achilles and then I just got loads and loads of injuries and so I've taken it's been about four years and so I stopped dancing in the summer and I'm going to wait until the injury I have now is completely gone. Although I did do one class last night, like <laughs> this week. That was my first one. It was just a ballet and I didn't do any of the jumping. And I love running. And again, I stopped doing that in the summer because I couldn't walk. And I'm going to leave a proper gap um, I really like swimming, so that's what I'm doing at the moment. Okay. I love swimming, and I'm also doing yoga, but just at home because I find sometimes if I go to a yoga class, I do things that hurt my injury just because I, I know you don't have to do everything, but I feel like I do when I'm in a class. Right, yeah. Not that anyone cares. No one would no. care. No one would care. The teacher is amazing, but I can't. I just, I, I guess it's, you know, to do with my identity again. I've always been like, you know, not brilliant at a physical activity, but a lot better than I am now. And I'm like, I can't let it go. I can't go to the class and, and not do it. So I <laughs> not don't do go. it all. Yeah. yeah. And then, so it sounds like swimming is. Swimming's pretty good. good for because, you at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. You just get completely lost in that. And there's, you know, no one really to compete against. Not that I'm competing against any, anyone, but, um, and I, I do really like gardening, but over the last couple of years, I've started to have this sense of guilt over the water because oh, watering. Had, yeah, because uh, we've oh, had okay. a hose pipe ban 
for the last two summers and I kind of feel I need to change up my gardening so Okay. I'm I'm perhaps growing things that are gonna just manage without Yeah, better. that watering because it Mm. Okay. I don't know it seems in in the environment that we have at the moment it to me it doesn't seem okay for me to be spending money and time on plants that a month into their life you're just going to have to let them die because there's a hosepipe ban and you can only and I don't have time to spend hours and hours watering it's kind of weird isn't it I've really the climate has really impacted my enjoyment of the planting and the growing but I still love nature and I love going for walks I noticed you have a little dog on your I bed do. I have a little I've got my collie is down here and so I love going and watching the colors and the seasons change Yeah. and I think autumn is just beautiful so I love that kind of being out in nature and watching things grow and die and maybe that's it maybe I'm kind of reverting a little bit more to let's just let's just let nature be nature stop it Susie stop interfering and trying to grow dahlias Yeah, leave it to the dandelions. They're doing vines. Why you know you know that whole why are you pulling out dandelions and planting things that are gonna die? The dandelions are fine. That They're sort hardy of enough to survive yeah, just throughout. leave them. <laughs> Stop yeah. interfering. Stop trying to control. So maybe that's the So discussion your relationship we have. with that is shifting. Yeah, Yeah. I would agree with dog walking being something that's quite like definitely grounding for me. And also, yeah, it does make you kind of connect a bit more with the changing of the seasons. And yeah. Yeah, because you have, I mean, I had to go out this morning. Yeah, same. Can't go, hey, sorry, <laughs> there's there's a storm. You yeah. you have to go out. And so you, you get to appreciate, because it's not that horrible. Once you get out there, it's okay, isn't it? Do you know Yeah, what I mean? And yeah. that appreciation of not everything has to be what you imagine it to be as the best ultimate Mm. I love the fact that going out, we go out twice a day and just mostly around early morning and then later in the evening, just watching the light change and the weather change Hmm. and, and the environment change. I, I do find that really helpful. Yeah, and I think actually my dog is uh, not always that well behaved. And I think having had a um, like he was worse when he was younger, like a reactive dog has meant that I didn't do things that other people do, like put earphones in. I think I would have had I had a very well behaved dog, <laughs> been very tempted to put earphones in when I was dog walking. And I would never do that because I wouldn't be alert enough. I have Yeah, to know to see what what's dog is going coming on. <laughs> and to Well, if, if it's the wrong dog. <laughs> you know, put him back on elite. And, um, and I think that has been quite good for me, actually, because I think, you know, if I run, I listen to something or, you know, but I think it gives me a different uh, headspace or I notice yeah, different different things experience, about the environment. yeah. And I let my brain kind of, yeah, I'm not constantly feeding it with uh, stimulation. <laughs> 
um when yeah, I'm dog I find he he loves foxes I mean he loves he's a he's a collie so he doesn't he's not after the fox to do anything with the fox he's just clearing the area mm-hmm. and I find you know that's what I when I when we go out that's what I'm look, looking for as well that's what he's looking for that's what <laughs> I'm looking for and it's quite nice isn't it and the, the foxes are like they're quite interactive there's one that barks at him and oh, really? runs away and then comes back and then runs away and comes back it's very much in the moment isn't it yeah it's helpful yes it's a good reminder for kind of mindfulness and being yeah being in the present moment I think dogs are very good at that (laughs) Susie I always end the podcast with asking what's the greatest gift knitting or craft in general has given to you for the rest of your life I think it would be the ability to share that with other people Mm. so either in terms of talking to people about crafting or uh making things for people yeah to I think probably my favorite gift about knitting is being able to teach someone else who watches you and says I wish I could do that Mm -hmm. and then watching them pick up the skills and then make make it their own yeah uh, but also report back to you. I've done this. I'm doing this now. Look at this picture of this. I love that. Yeah, I love that too. I had yeah. somebody recently who apologised to me for like sending me too many pictures of the things that I've they'd made, and I was like, you should must never apologise for that. I love it. <laughs> yeah, seeing seeing someone else's joy and appreciation yeah. grow from them not having any access to it other than being able to look and thinking I'll never be able to do that that's too hard how are you doing those things to having the confidence to try and then you whenever you teach someone you never know what they're gonna do with that do you and that's it's almost a bit like a seed you give them a seed and then they just build their whole craft garden with that and the ideas that they have and the things that they want to make. It, mm. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. And how how simple it is to share the skill that then can change someone's life forever. Because I think it's something that you, once someone's taught you, you might forget and need to relearn but it is something that you have forever yeah and I think think... it's always in your hands like I've certainly taught people who don't even remember learning to knit before and I've said to them your hands have definitely done this before and then they've checked with their parents and been like oh yeah you did it when you were five for a few like a few weeks or something I, I love how it is for everyone I know like it it's marketed for the women but it is for everyone and no I mean maybe someone gets frustrated or annoyed with it and puts it down but no one ever goes oh you taught me how to knit and now my life is awful (laughs) yeah this is true 
yeah, it's a very simple kind of and easy thing that can make a massive difference, I think, to certain people. Or like even the idea, I think, that you could have this tool that you could bring with you throughout your life and it's something you could turn back to in times of challenge or times of boredom or times of lack of focus or, you know, when you need a project or something interesting. It's, it's a coping tool, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you know, here's, here's, a, here's a little box of treats that you can always come back to and it will help you in the future forever. I think that's what that's a great gift that knitting or any 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 craft but I yeah. think knitting and and crochet because they're sort of similar aren't they in the terms of the construction is quite similar and the process of stitches is quite similar you can adapt those in so many ways to suit what you need in that moment yeah Yes, it's very accessible in that sense, isn't it? In terms of you being able to need one thing and me needing something very different and we could both find what we want from knitting or crochet, couldn't we? Well, Susie, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for Thank telling you. me about your research. And yeah, I look forward to hearing more about it. And if anyone wants to find out more about you and your work, how would they do that? Probably the easiest way is on my instagram yeah because i've got the link tree on there uh, yeah goes to quite a few things that are related to my research so i have a book chapter that's coming out in january oh exciting about using creative methods yeah and i have got a blog with what I'm trying to do is collate all the images because mm -hmm. my research is quite visual. Yeah. And it also has a link to a silence survey because I've just recently done a chapter on silence in research mm -hmm. where if anyone wants to leave a story about when they've been silenced, there's a anonymous form on there okay so do you want to tell me what your instagram handle is or Susie bass underscore anyhow that's okay it. great and i will put a link in the show notes so that um people can find you through that thank link as well. you very You're much welcome. thank you so much thank you so much for listening to the podcast if you'd like to find out more about my work, you can visit my website, therapeuticknitting.org, or you can follow me on Instagram at knittingistherapeutic. Thanks.